0: Hello and welcome to The Green Canary. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about an attempted takeover of AGL. We're going to be talking about the closure of one of Australia's largest coal-fired power plants what's going on with Big Oil's green energy pledges. Hint, not a lot. And we're also going to be touching on a more somber note and speaking about shark mitigation technology and what we can do to stop these sort of violent encounters that we've been seeing. I'm Elfie Scott and sitting across from me the de- from me on the desk as always is Aunt Sherwood.
1: Hi Elfie, how are you? Um- Look, it's good to see you, and I hope your weekend was good. I went to Canberra and had a swim in the Murrumbidgee River, which always makes me feel refreshed. You're looking fresh, mate. Thank you very much. And I know you secretly like Canberra as well, which uh, we're members of the secret, I like Canberra, even though it's not cool to admit it, society. (laughs) Uh, It is true, let's be fair. It it, it is cool to uh, talk talk about uh, everything that's going on in the world of green energy. And what on earth happened this weekend with AGL and Mike Cannon-Brooks?
0: Yes, okay, so this is a very interesting story. I'm sure most of you have seen this by now. But basically, on Sunday night, uh, you may have caught the headlines about billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks teaming up with the international fund manager, Brookfield, and putting a bid on AGL for a takeover. So that was over the weekend. But by this morning, we got the news that AGL had rejected their offer because they're saying that it materially undervalues the company. Um, And what do we know about AGL and why was Mike Cannon-Brooks even interested in a stunt like this? Well,
1: I might have have a go at the second one first because I don't think it's a stunt. I mean, Cannon-Brooks has had his environmental cards on the table for a long time. Um, You know, he pledged uh, money to to renewable uh, energy companies before COP. I think he he offered $500 towards those who were developing technologies. he is one of the new breed of, of billionaire activists, they're called. Um, billionaires who want to do do something good in the world, who want to make a difference, who want to help with the energy transition, who see their role as as, as powerful people, at least financially, uh, to, to, to be socially powerful as well, environmentally powerful. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Canon Brooks. And look, I don't really know if he woke up one morning and said, hey, AGL is really the company for me. That's what I want to do. I want to own AGL. Um, but... I do think he was rattling the cage a little bit. I mm. think um, to, to go to a company like that, which with all its its dirty energy generation that it does, and to say, hey, we're going to clean you up, we're going to make you net zero by 2030, um, for a number of reasons, AGL have, have knocked him back. But as I say, great signs, good cage rattling. And it's the sort of thing that's going to happen next time, more likely than not, whether it's AGL or another company.
0: Yeah, I mean, God, let's hope so. Um, You know, AGL are convinced that at this point that they can reinvent themselves by basically splitting their assets into two and, you know, having one half of the company focus on renewables while keeping another to watch over its coal assets. Whether or not they'll succeed in a venture like that is yet to be seen. But yeah, I think basically, what we're learning is that these sort of companies aren't really viable they're not really you know within the the future of Australia well to... well
1: well the dirty energy well, side yes. of their business is 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 less and less viable and you know that of course is why origin uh, energy this week revealed that they're bringing forward the closure of their Araring power station by 7 years to 2025. Now, now, if anyone's ever driven north from Sydney towards Newcastle, a is that big, ugly structure on Lake Macquarie, um, or, and 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 it's it's responsible for, I believe, 20% of New South Wales uh, electricity generation. It's responsible, I believe, also for two percent of Australia's greenhouse emissions, mm. just out of that one plant. And they're going to close it seven years early. Um, now interesting times in the liberal governments around australia um angus taylor energy minister are not not so thrilled about it but here in new south wales uh matt keen has sort of come riding in on on his horse and, and said all right let's Let's deal with this from a jobs perspective, hasn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Once again, seems like the states are cleaning up the federal government's mess. <laughs> let's put it that way. But um, Matt Keane has fast-tracked this jobs program to offer the 400 workers who will lose their jobs at a um, and give them the opportunity to, tran- to transition into the renewable sector. Um, so New South Wales have already said that they'll create 3,700 positions in green energy manufacturing and transmission.
1: Yeah, and, and I just... I love the way Matt Keane operates. Um, we're gonna try and get him on the show, I think. you know I had a conversation with him recently about, about my Brumby's book, because he was the minister responsible for, for enacting the, the management plan that, to go along with the Kosciuszko Brumby leg- legislation. Um, and he loves conservation. He said, I'm a conservative politician. I like conserving things. And I think every conservative politician should put that on their door. I like conserving <laughs> things. One of the things we have to conserve in Australia um, is, is our environment, uh, green energy is a great way to do that, and we have to conserve jobs and create jobs. Mm. And he clearly believes, uh, he really believes, it. he's not just saying it, that, that there are jobs in green energy manufacturing, and there are. So pathways are being created as old energy closes. Um, it's These are actually two terrific stories that have happened this week. But as we know, I, I guess in environmental news news, um, We like to talk about green energy, but we like to talk about things that are happening out there in the natural environment as well. And I guess one of the saddest stories that anyone's seen for a long, long time um, in the outdoors sort of sphere was was the shark incident in Sydney. Yeah. Um, Now, shark people actually, when I say shark people, scientists and that, they don't call them shark attacks. Uh, They call them Incidents, or they've, they've got a few sort of words. You know, the point being that a shark is not attacking a human. A shark is doing what a shark does, which is uh, look for its next meal. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: And yeah. in this case, it was it was. Horrendous, and it was so tragic to see. And we should say that, you know, our thoughts are with the family of Simon Nellist, who was the 35-year-old diver and photographer who was tragically killed in this incident. Um, But, you know, since the man's death, there have been reports of people trying to hunt down the great white shark that was supposedly responsible in this occurrence. Um, And that's also brought attention back to shark shark nets, especially because New South Wales has historically had the most enthusiastic uptake on this method. Supposedly keeping swimmers safe, although that's deeply controversial. Um, but this week, Ant, you spoke to Ali Jennings, who is a geoscientist and long-time campaigner against shark nets, and she works with Shark Conservation Australia, right?
1: Uh, she's a volunteer with them, okay. but she's been a long-time campaigner, actually, with a lot of organisations. And yeah, I asked her. I-, I think we need to go there every time we have one of these incidents. Mm. Uh, what is the deal with shark nets and and other prevention methods? And I had a chat to Ali this week.
2: We have in New South Wales across 51 beaches from Newcastle to Wollongong. We have the Shark meshing program, which this year is has its 85th anniversary. So since 1937, we have had nets at beaches. Only just in the last five years or so we've had smart drum lines. So the shark machine program, which I'll talk about first, as I mentioned, 51 beaches, Newcastle to Wollongong. The Nets basically the best way to describe it is. Think of a tennis court net. That's literally what it's like. It doesn't go from headland to headland. It doesn't go from the surface of the water to the bottom. Sharks can swim under, around and over. Um, And these are placed off beaches during the season, which is September through to the beginning of April. And they are, well, let's just say it's a government sanctioned fishing program. It does not afford... Ocean uses efficient safety. And as I've looked through the data over the years, we are now seeing more and more uh, more what they call non-target species. So when the government, uh, Department of Parliament Industries, who administers this program, um, they are literally targeting three target species of sharks deemed dangerous to humans. So whites, tigers and bull sharks. What you now see in the data is we're seeing less of those caught and more of everything else, and this includes things like non-target shark species, like critically endangered grey nurse sharks, hammerheads, which are, you know, considered to be endangered and threatened all across the world, uh, rays. Rays often make up huge numbers in the catch. Um, you get even turtles, turtles. For instance, this the most recent report that came out because um, there's an annual report every year. Uh, there were six species of turtle caught in nets and five of those six um, species are endangered.
0: Sorry, that was Ali Jennings uh, who... Is volunteering with Shark Conservation Australia and happens to be a very um, amazing expert in all of this. But you know, there was also this story that came out of the shark attack encounter, whatever you want to call it, um, because it turns out the Sydney Beachside Council ta- councils had been promised these smart drumlines in the lead up to summer, and that was promised last year uh, by the then Deputy Premier John Barilaro. Uh, but they've only de- deployed those drumlines this week um, from. Malabar to Little Bay in Brandwick Council to try and trap those um, sharks and potentially trap the shark that attacked Simon Nellist. So trials with these smart drum mimes have found that they're effective in catching and releasing sharks without killing them. But yeah, as always, the nets themselves seem to be ineffective and pretty controversial.
1: Nets in New South Wales caught 375 marine animals last year alone. Um, Most of them were not quote-unquote, target species, uh, they caught hammerheads, which are one of the rarest sharks in the world, and you don't want them caught. They caught rays. You don't want rays caught. They caught 18 marine turtles. That's just in the 51 nets between Newcastle and Wollongong. You do not want marine turtles caught mm. in nets. And, you know, one of the points Ali made made with me, um, you know, in, in that chat that we had is... is um, when you get animals caught in the nets uh you actually attract more sharks oh, because the right. animals are flapping yeah, yeah, about sure. uh, flapping their fins or their whatever they've got about and actually attracting sharks so so look nets don't work nets are archaic nets are almost a placebo for swimmers you go mm. oh there's a net i feel good uh, they are not the answer again in in part of our conversation that didn't air smart drum lines yeah there, there are pluses there are minuses don't have to go into those at two lengths but at too at great length sorry but the main point you made is drones 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 mm-hmm. drones drones send up drones uh, at busy especially at busy city beaches and we can monitor sharks uh, from the air we have the technology uh, that is by far the best and cheapest and most technologically sensible solution than any other sort of infrastructure we can we can put in place, which again, to use that word, are Pretty much a placebo for the public.
0: Yeah, totally. I think that people are recognizing more and more as this technology becomes available that it's not a matter of being on the side of the sharks or the swimmers. There are ways of mitigating risk for people in the ocean that don't interfere with the ecology. That's exactly and right. That's and what we aim for.
1: Drones are a pretty good way of that. All right, so totally. let's 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 get into mulch. Let's get into some of the little snippets that we saw this week, and let's talk about those big oil uh, clean quote unquote energy claims <laughs> that we uh, mentioned. <laughs> (laughs) mentioned mentioned in the intro to the potty today, Elfie. What's this all about?
0: Okay, so a new study has looked at the environmental claims of big oil companies, including Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, and BP, and found that, surprise, surprise, they are failing to meet their green energy pledges and they lack transparency in their reporting around green energy investments. I feel like this study almost didn't need to be done. I feel like we could have guessed that at this point. But, you know, I think that it's also important to be able to have the data to point to because ultimately all of these companies, and I did look this up, they either have explicit 2050 targets for net zero emissions, or they've got some wishy-washy messages about believing in a greener future. So what this data does is really pin down the BS.
1: Yeah, it's great. I love it. And I love the academic language in this study that you identified. It, it, it I, I mean, academic ease is almost, you know, worth mocking sometimes, but sometimes it comes to the rescue. And this, this line here, we thus conclude that the transition to clean energy business models is not occurring since the magnitude of investments and actions does not match Discourse. Um, which, discourse. Which is how an academic <laughs> says, uh, you know, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, and friends, you're talking crap and you're not fooling anybody. Yes. And uh, speaking about not fooling anybody, uh, we keep getting c- told that. Uh, Farmers are responsible land managers, and some of them are. I'm not bagging every farmer, but land clearing has tripled in New South Wales over the past decade, hasn't it?
0: Yep. So, this year's New South Wales State of the Environment report, which happens every three years, sorry, um, so it has found that land clearing in the state has increased threefold in the past decade. Um, you know what? I could go into the statistics. I could tell you that 62% of vegetation in the state is now under pressure from too much fire. Habitats are being destroyed. Bird, bird populations. And fish populations are declining. Yes, it's all grim. Like that's the that's the wrap up here. It sucks. <laughs> I
1: can't understand why anyone is allowed to clear a single tree off any piece of land anywhere. That might be too radical. There might be reasons, such as farming for food that I eat. But it it, it seems to me just you know you get people here from overseas and you tell them we're still clearing land and they go
0: it's it, at this astronomical rate as well. It's
1: it's like you're still using horse and carriage for, for the primary <laughs> transport method. It's it's just. Uh, un- unbelievable. And look, um, one one of the things that that land clearing, of course, uh, does is make less and less koala habitat. And now it looks like there's a new initiative, um, which which could actually help us identify uh, beef beef that has been produced in areas that kept koalas safer so so the idea is basically to stick a little symbol or something on the packet i think mm. like your heart foundation tick or your rspca paw i mean before long everything we buy is going to have 73 stamps and patches and logos all over it, but that doesn't matter. Good. Uh, we, you know, it's, it's, this is a, a move by Australia's peak organisation for rural producers, AgForce, and they said they want to develop a scorecard in conjunction with CSIRO, just so that consumers, people who eat beef, 80% of which is sold in the big two supermarkets, uh, so that they can know that the beef was farmed on land, which wasn't cleared of koala habitat. So that's potentially a good news story.
0: Koala-free beef, delicious. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Tasty.
0: Before we head off today, we'd like to pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the country on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We'd also like to pay our respects to the Narigo people, whose country our guest Al- Ali Jennings was recording on. And we'd like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. This land was stolen, never ceded.
1: Oh, very well said, as always, Elfie. And we'd just like to remind you all out there that we are on Twitter at Green Canary Pod. We are at Green Canary Media on Instagram. We would love you to tag us, to interact with us, to share our pods, our episodes. We would also love you to join our newsletter, to subscribe. Just email hello at thegreencanary.com co we have several hundred people on the on the uh, newsletter getting it each week and we would love you to be one of them got dozens and dozens of people coming each week so join on up and we'll see you next week
0: all right bye. bye